0: Welcome to the pharmacotherapy podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, we are talking with Dr. Christina Dologowski, Assistant Professor at the University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy and Director of the Solid Organ Transplant Pharmacy Residency Program at the UNC Hospitals and Clinics. We are joined by Dr. Lindsay Bowman, who is Pharmacotherapy Specialist in the Kidney Transplant Service at Tampa General Hospital in Tampa, Florida. Drs. Dologowski and Bowman, served as guest editors of the themed issue on solid organ transplantation in an upcoming issue of pharmacotherapy. Christina and Lindsay, if I can be so informal and use your given names, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Lindsay. I know Chrissy and I are really excited to be here today and talk a little bit more about this special issue.
2: Yes, thank you so much for having us.
0: Oh you're you're very welcome. Um, Let me just begin um, that you included an editorial in this themed issue, and maybe I could get one of you, perhaps Chrissy, to to comment. Your editorial noted that solid organ transplantation is a life-saving but relatively new procedure. Would you begin by commenting on the history of transplantation and how rapidly this field has come from being considered uh, experimental to becoming a relatively commonplace service in many healthcare institutions?
2: Absolutely. So while we had the first solid organ transplant procedure that occurred in the 1950s, really we consider the modern era of immunosuppression and truly solid organ transplantation to have begun in 1984 with the introduction of cyclosporin, our first calcineurin inhibitor, that provided adequate immunosuppression in conjunction with azathioprine and prednisone that we already had in hand, and in the time since then, we've really had such a rapid change in our pharmacotherapy that's been utilized, where we've quickly been able to settle on a regimen of a calcineurin inhibitor, whether it be tacrolimus or cyclosporin, and then an antimetabolite, um, and that has allowed us to have adequate immunosuppression. To prevent acute rejection and really allow for transplantation to become this standard of practice. And so while it may feel mundane at times when you have these kind of folks who. Fly through transplant relatively easily on this set regimen. Um, I always remind myself that it, it really is only about 30 years old, at, at this point, 35 years old, with cyclosporin, that we've had these medications. And there's still a lot that we don't know about them and how we should be using them. In addition, um, we know that the understanding of how important antibody mediated rejection is in our short and long term graft survival as well as some of the therapies that we've borrowed, I'll say in quotes from our oncology colleagues, to treat these antibodies has allowed us to expand the patients that we're transplanting and really grow what it is that we are able to do in a relatively short period of time.
0: Thank you. That's a very helpful uh, background to begin our conversation. Uh, But let me ask another background question. Perhaps this would be appropriate for Lindsay to, to answer. It's immediately apparent from reading uh, the articles in this themed issue that there's an expertise needed for an organ transplant service that's very broad. And I'm wondering, what would be the background if there's such a thing of a typical transplant service team? And and also, are transplant teams becoming more subspecialized? That is, uh, do teams for cardiac transplant differ from Uh, the teams and expertise involved in kidney or liver transplantation?
1: Yeah, Lindsay. So, you know, the transplant pharmacist, regardless of center, setting, or organ, is really an essential member of the transplant team. The specific role, however, can be incredibly diverse, really depending on the center and sometimes state laws. So, for example, in the state of North Carolina, where Chrissy practices, She is able to practice almost independently under her CPP or clinical pharmacist practitioner certification. So what that means is that she sees her own patients in clinic. She's able to uh, adjust drug therapy in clinic as opposed to where I work and kind of my role is where I work directly with the inpatient transplant team and kind of more of a traditional rounding interdisciplinary setting. Most transplant teams are comprised of physicians, advanced practice providers, transplant nurse coordinators, dietitians, social workers, and transplant pharmacists. So all of us have our own kind of unique and collaborative role. I guess you can say it truly does take a village. And you know, while the makeup of the teams across the organ groups is usually the same, the teams, as you mentioned, are what could be considered sub-specialized. And that goes for the pharmacists within those teams as well. You're also correct in that we don't just focus on transplant medications. We manage everything from critical care issues to infectious diseases, more common and chronic disease states such as diabetes, hypertension, CAD, anticoagulation, just to name a few. And many transplant pharmacists today have both PGY1 and PGY2 solid organ transplant training. However, that isn't always the case. There are some transplant pharmacists that may have learned to care for these complex patients on the job, if you will, some of which may have been placed in their position due to the prior regulatory mandates for a transplant pharmacist on the team. So regardless of background, it's imperative that transplant pharmacists stay up to date on issues that our patients are facing on a daily basis. And that's why the transplant community is really grateful to have this entire issue um, within an awesome journal that is dedicated to solid organ transplant.
0: You you mentioned anticoagulation, which I'd like to come back to in a moment, but kind of a a follow-up question for Chrissy. The articles in your themed issue make it clear that the need for donors is far greater than the actual supply, but underutilized donor populations are now being included. That um, includes older donors and other subpopulations. I'm just wondering, as some of the readers may Um, Has this situation increased the complexity of pharmacotherapy and transplantation? I mean, what comes to mind are just a couple of examples in my mind. Are donor hearts from, say, older individuals that are now being utilized, uh, would they be included that have a history of reduced ejection fraction, for example, or arrhythmias? Or uh, are livers uh, considered from donors who have a history of uh, NAFL, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, And and while we really are pushing the bounds of donor acceptance um, to include things like those, you know, non-pristine donor hearts or non-pristine donor livers, probably the largest increase in utilization that we have seen has been in the utilization of donors with infectious risk or complications and really that's largely been driven by utilization of donors with hepatitis C. Um, and this has been able to be done given the amazing advancements that we've had in hepatitis C pharmacotherapy, where we can essentially cure hepatitis C with a relatively um Uh, simple medication therapy regimen. Um, But what that has added is a layer of complexity to our transplant care that really requires this careful approach and collaboration with our hepatology colleagues to make sure that if we are putting a hepatitis C positive donor into a hepatitis C negative recipient, that we're able to manage that de novo hepatitis C quickly and appropriately. Additionally, the overall increase increased spread for donor acceptance has led to more marginal donors, as you mentioned. Um, and what we see in practice is that this often leads to prolonged post-transplant ICU stays. And I think that that's where we really rely on the collaboration with our critical care colleagues. Um, our transplant patients are staying in the ICUs longer because their grafts maybe aren't working as quickly or as well as um, a graft that is what we would consider are optimal in those folks leaving the ICUs quickly. And so then all overall, we end up seeing a larger proportion of recipients that also just have renal dysfunction um, due to either pre-existing dysfunction or prolonged ICU stay. And so there's a huge role for the entire team to think about minimizing further nephrotoxicity um, through both medication immunosuppression management, as well as diabetes and hypertension management long-term.
0: You've um, implied a, a lot of unusual complications for uh, post-transplant uh, pharmacotherapy, and I would uh, imagine a lot of ethical issues as well that must come up for the transplant team as well as, as patients. But I'd, I'd like to move on and, and go back to Lindsay's comment about anticoagulation. You mentioned the use of uh, direct-acting oral anticoagulants, that these drugs have become much more commonplace in transplantation. One of the reviews in your uh, themed issue covers this topic, but could you mention some of the common concerns for use of these drugs over the conventional anticoagulants that many people think of, such as warfarin and, and, and heparin?
1: Absolutely. We all know we've been using warfarin for decades prior to the approval of the first DOAC. And while I think we can all agree that warfarin has its multitude of issues with regard to numerous drug interactions, food interactions, elimination, large inter and intra patient variability, we've also gotten pretty good at accounting for these limitations and really knowing how to use it in clinical practice. And let's face it, as transplant clinicians, in which our mainstay of therapy is a drug that we can provide therapeutic drug monitoring on, we were really beside ourselves when we were introduced to a whole new class of anticoagulants that we didn't have the ability to monitor their anticoagulant effects. In addition, all of the DOACs undergo some degree of renal elimination. And as Chrissy mentioned, that's a concern in all of our solid organ transplant types, even, you know, not just our kidney transplant patients, in which there's fluctuating renal uh, renal function. And so that, coupled with several drug interactions with medications that we commonly use post-transplant, so some examples being the azole antifungals, amiodarone, and then not having a reliable reversal agent it really kind of you know made it pretty tricky uh, in the post transplant setting to feel comfortable using the doax um, especially when you throw in the fact that some of our patients undergo routine or protocol biopsies, and so if we need to reverse the anticoagulant effects, we didn't have an agent. You were correct in that in this in this special themed issue, we have a review that is dedicated specifically to the data. Surrounding DOAX in solid, solid organ transplant. And it's with these data that we are able to feel more comfortable recommending and utilizing the DOAX in our transplant patients, really helping us to know who um, are, good, are good candidates and what considerations are at play when thinking about the best agent, the best dose for a given patient.
0: Lindsay, you just referred to the intra-individual variability in uh, pharmacodynamic response and pharmacokinetics that plagues a lot of uh, drugs that are used in pharmacotherapy. And so I think perhaps um, if I could ask Chrissy to comment on this, because I know there's an article in the themed issue that addresses this. Uh, Another area of pharmacotherapy of major concern is optimal immunosuppression. And so, uh, Chrissy, would you comment on the current issues that face transplant teams in achieving appropriate drug therapy in this area?
2: Absolutely. So, you know, while I mentioned earlier, we've really become quite successful in addressing and managing our short-term transplant outcomes. And when I say short-term, I'm really speaking about that one-year mark. Our long-term graft outcomes are still limited by both cardiovascular complications and chronic rejection. And it's my opinion that this is largely due to the measured outcomes that we see from our national regulatory bodies that require reporting of one-year outcomes by transplant programs for accreditation. Um, While this holds our transplant communities accountable and allows for us to optimize those early outcomes in ways, I feel that this has stymied our progress in addressing some of the more long-term outcomes, like 5-, 10-, and 15-year outcomes. Um, The uh, recent addition of reported three-year outcomes to the national dashboards helps, but we still have... Quite a long way to go. Um, and so I think that really, when I think about optimal immunosuppression, I'm thinking not only about the, the short term approach, but really seeing that we're missing this optimal long term approach for our transplant recipients.
0: Uh, some of our readers may be wondering whether or not there are newer drugs that might supplant the use or uh, improve, be improvements of bone, uh, tacrolimus or is this drug likely to remain the mainstay of immunosuppression for these long-term patients once they're started for 3 years, 5 years, 10 or 15?
2: Yeah, this is this is really where novel therapies like belatacept being our most recent should have an important role. Unfortunately, as a transplant community, we haven't quite figured out how best to utilize some of these newer therapies that minimize short-term risks, such as increased episodes of rejection when therapies like bladicept are compared to tacrolimus, while gaining the long-term benefits of that therapy that avoids cardiovascular outcomes and impaired graft function that we can have from nephrotoxicity Um, And while Baladicept is our most exciting novel therapy, its use and study has been almost exclusively limited to renal transplantation, leading us really unsure about its role in other organs like heart transplant um, or more immunogenic organs like lung transplant. Um, And we've seen with bilaticept now a similar trend of what happened when sirolimus and everolimus are mTOR inhibitors, Um, came to the market that no one, you know, we haven't really as a community found that clear cut way to utilize these therapies to give us that long term outcome. And then the final piece that I'll add here is that we, in day-to-day practice, hit these logistic and financial barriers when we do try and move outside of the status quo of a synchronous-based regimen. Um, we often see off label denials from insurers, including Medicare, that have significantly limited our ability to provide what even may be considered standard immunosuppressive therapies like the mTOR inhibitors to some of our organ transplant recipients. Um, These barriers can make the day-to-day implementation of novel approaches really quite challenging.
0: Up until now, we've been talking about single-organ transplantation, but there's an article in your themed issue that mentions multi-organ transplant combinations and that they've doubled in the last decade. Uh, some of our listeners may be wondering, are there major differences in caring for these patients uh, depending upon the type of organs, that uh, multiple organs that might be transplanted?
1: You know, Lindsay, nearly everything that we do in solid organ transplant is a weighted balance between allograft rejection and infection. And those risk profiles really vary between solid organ transplant types. So, for example, in liver transplant recipients, they require the lowest immunosuppression. And this is compared with the opposite end of the spectrum. As Chrissy mentioned, lung and even small bowel being more immunogenic. The infectious risk and the severity also varies greatly between organ types. So you can imagine that if you're doing a combined solid organ transplant, where risks for each of these you know are vastly different, this balancing act just got much greater. Um, your multidisciplinary team and the need for collaboration also just grew exponentially as well, which is extremely important.
0: There's another area that's covered in your themed issue. Uh, that's specialized, I, I guess you'd say, in transplantation. And that's the pediatric patient, although I guess it's debatable whether pediatric transplantation is, is truly novel or not. But again, are there major issues regarding pharmacotherapy of the pediatric population that might not differ from considerations in the adult organ recipient?
2: Yeah, Lindsay, um, like so much of the pharmacotherapy in pediatric patient populations, there's just not a lot of data to help us guide care. Um, transplant is known to be this data Um Weak area where, you know, what we consider strong data, um, a cardiology group may say, I can't believe that you're considering that strong data. Um, and so we, that's really compounded in this pediatric transplant population. Um, in addition to that, we know that for our pediatric patients, the evolution of the immune system as the pediatric pediatric patient grows older is important to consider. Um, There's generally poor immune recognition and less immunosuppression needed at very early ages, um, whereas a much more robust immune system by the time that our pediatric patients are reaching adolescence. Additionally, the underlying disease states that lead to the need for transplantation in pediatric populations typically vary quite a bit from what we see in the adult side. And that can make translation of adult transplant knowledge to a pediatric population quite challenging for those who aren't used to caring for those recipients. And that's where I feel like this particular paper can carry um, a lot of benefit for the entire transplant community if there are folks who may be having to or jumping into taking care of pediatric patients, um, that they have that good baseline knowledge. And then finally, of course, in a pediatric world, the psychosocial considerations um, are incredibly important when we're considering transitioning those patients over to the adult setting, um, talking about ownership of medication, management, education of pediatric recipients um, to make their care singularly unique within the transplant world that we don't see really um, in any of our other patient populations.
0: Thanks for that perspective, Chrissy. I, and I think it was you that began our conversation by saying, you know, how in some ways the transplantation field is is relatively new uh, compared to other sort of surgical and medical care fields. <laughs> this past year, with the ongoing pandemic, has affected a variety of healthcare services, and and so I'm wondering, and maybe Lindsay will comment, what effect has the pandemic had? on solid organ transplantation and the availability and selection of donors. Because I think both of you have made it clear that the number of needed recipients is far greater than the number of donors. And I think our readers will be wondering what effect the pandemic has had on this issue.
1: This is a really great question, a really important one. As you know, non-essential surgical procedures from across the country came to a temporary halt. Interestingly, however, the definition of essential when it came to solid organ transplant really varied. So for example, at Tampa General Hospital, we stopped doing living donor kidney transplants for a few months, but all of our other organ transplants continued. While some centers and programs from around the country actually stopped doing, some of them stopped doing kidney transplants altogether or quit transplanting a subset of patients. So, for example, maybe they temporarily quit transplanting those immunologically high-risk patients that may require a higher degree of overall immunosuppression. With regard to deceased donors and the risk of transmission, many programs began testing the donors for COVID-19 prior to accepting the organs. And while I don't think the COVID-positive donors have been frequently encountered, I do think that because of the changes in both donor and recipient selection at many centers, we are going to see that this pandemic significantly and negatively affected the overall number of transplants that were performed throughout the U.S.
0: Well, your comments are 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 very pertinent, and um, there are obviously uh, many areas of great need in pharmacotherapy for solid organ transplantation patients that have yet to be uh, adequately addressed. Just uh, to conclude our discussion, are there, are there any final comments you would like to make to our listeners to uh, encourage them to access the articles and the reviews in your themed issue of uh, pharmacotherapy?
2: You state that completely correctly that there are still a lot of unaddressed issues. We tried to cover as many topics within this particular special issue that we could, um, especially in areas that we had a lot of new and growing data. um, Where unfortunately we're still missing a good bit of data um, is really around not only the importance, but most importantly, the therapy that we can use for antibodies and antibody mediated rejection that include both donor specific as well as non donor specific and even non HLA antibodies that we are beginning just beginning to understand how important those are in the field of transplant um, and those long term graft outcomes and really the optimal pharmacotherapy for those situations is truly unknown. We have some limited data sets out of single centers, but nothing truly robust. And so I think that's an area that I hope um, in the next five to 10 years, we would be able to have a a really nice paper out um, to describe what, what that um, would look like, what that therapy would look like. And then while it's not quite as, um, fun or exciting as this, you know, immunologic breakthrough of these antibodies Really, one of our biggest Achilles heel in solid organ transplantation are cardiovascular complications long term for our patients. We know a lot about cardiovascular complications in our general population, but we still haven't mastered or know the the impact of that in our transplant recipients and how we can prevent some of those complications, knowing that we have just this complex patient population with competing drug interactions, underlying disease states that may limit utilization of good guideline-based therapy for kind of a standard cardiovascular risk patient. Um, and so I feel like those are two areas that we still have yet to, to master and explore. Um, but I think that within this special issue, we cover a lot of those really pertinent things that are top of mind, top of serves and discussion boards and, you know, rounding chatter um, within the transplant teams.
0: Well, I'd, I'd like to conclude and thank you both for good discussion today and remind our listeners that the entire issue of pharmacotherapy devoted to solid organ transplantation is available on the journal's website. And uh, it was assembled by Drs. Uh, Christina Dologowski and Lindsay Bowman, as guest editors. Thank you again.
2: Thank you. Thank you.